Last week I said this, uh, that this series is a little bit different kind of series um, because, uh, because I'm talking about a lot of history um, when, uh, when I'm in this particular series. And so I'm not spending as much time in a scripture and looking at the words of scripture um, and, and how they relate to all of the other words. But, but we're going to have that. So don't worry, that's going to be in there too. Um, but um, we're talking about uh, um, the foundations of Christmas and the history of Christmas and the traditions of Christmas. And so last week I started this, and I think that this is really important because of a lot of things that we're told um, today. Um, if you go to um, most schools, um, any kind of university, and you take any kind of a Bible as lit class or, or really, you know, in history classes, um, uh, so many of the courses that you get at colleges and sometimes even Christian colleges are going to tell you that a lot of the traditions of Christmas are pagan. And, uh, and so just us having kind of an understanding is as well, when we look at the history that's here what does the history tell us? And, and so how can we, when we hear those kinds of things that, that a lot of the traditions of Christmas are pagan, how, how do we respond? How do we think about that? And so, and I've heard that for years. I, you know, that was being said when I was in college and university, and I've even heard that inside of the church, and I haven't always known how to respond to that. And so that's why this set of sermons is so significant. And so I want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week, go back um, and listen to that sermon. It's on the church website and uh, and listen to that sermon because these kind of web themselves together and um, they make more sense when you listen um, to last week and this week and and I think I'll even come back um, next week after Christmas and cover a little bit more of that but I want to talk about the foundations of Christmas and its Christian roots the first official Christmas celebration um, that we know of happened in 336 AD. And part of the reason why that was the first official one is, is because that's when Christianity became legal. Prior to that, there was a significant amount of persecution, and, uh, and Christianity was on the outskirts of the culture of the day. But when Constantine made um, Christianity legal, it became appropriate to celebrate um, some of the things that were important to Christians. And Christmas was one of those things. And so that's when uh, Christmas first began to be celebrated as some kind of a cultural holiday. Um, but the early church did not celebrate Christmas. And there's a few reasons for that. Is they didn't celebrate um, um, Jesus' birth in the way that we do today. Um, they didn't even celebrate birthdays in the early church which is likely the reason why Jesus' birth, while known, recognized, and included in the Gospels, it wasn't celebrated as a holiday. Early Christians didn't celebrate birthdays at all. They celebrated the day that you died because that's the day that you entered into heavenly courts. Also, the date of December 25th wasn't likely the day of Jesus' birthday. But the idea that Christians co-opted a pagan holiday for Jesus' birthday, while often claimed, doesn't have a lot of historical support. So, for instance, the Feast of Sol Invictus was set after December 25th was talked about as a possible date for Jesus' birth. And I've heard that a lot. I've heard that um, over the years that Sol Invictus was co-opted by Christians. Well, that can't really historically be true because Sol Invictus was set after they had already started talking about December 25th as the date of Jesus' birth. 
And so you can get more details about that from last week's um, sermon. But you can be relatively sure that, that um, December 25th had less to do with paganism than what is being said. Believe it or not, the Christmas tree is a distinctly Christian tradition. They're not found in the Bible. They actually come out of German mystery plays where the trees represented the tree in the garden of life in Genesis. The tree moved from the stage into the home as a part of the Christmas um, celebration, just as a part of that, that the, the, in Germany, they just loved that picture of the tree and the tree of life. And so they took it from the stage into their homes and used it as a part of the celebration of Christmas. Martin Luther, though, absolutely loved Christmas trees. He, he loved the pine trees, and, and they would actually bring the tree into the home, carrying, they would have these candles, and they'd carry them to the home, and, and the candles represented um, the light uh, of the world and the stars of the heavens, and then the tree was set up in the home, and it was all a part of the Christmas celebration. So how did Christmas trees become so prevalent in other parts of the world? Well, Queen Victoria in England married a German princess, or prince by the name of Prince Albert. Thus, Christmas trees passed from England to the United States. So Christmas trees are not at all connected to paganism. They are connected to the medieval mystery plays, to Martin Luther, to Queen Victoria in England, and because of England's history with the United States, to us. That's how it came to us. Now, you might have heard the story about St. Boniface, cutting down Thor's oak, you know, the Greek um, god Thor, St. Boniface cutting down Thor's oak and therefore spitting in the eye of paganism and Christianizing the practice of trees. The problem is is that there are 600 years between the story of St. Boniface and the first Christmas tree, so it's pretty doubtful that that was uh, a part of the, you know, the Christmas tree tradition. Um, How about manger scenes? Um, They're called creches, they come out of Italy. And the first crash was set up by St. Francis of Assisi. It was originally a manger with a donkey and a sheep next to it. It was very simple, and it's grown more elaborate over the years, which is why um, crashes are associated with Italy, because that's where they started. Now, Yule logs are clearly pagan. So I don't know how many of you have had Yule logs a part of your, um, your Christmas celebrations or things like that, but they're clearly pagan. And there are lots of cultural elements to Christmas celebrations. In fact, we could say is, is that most of Christmas today has been enculturated. It's very cultural, and it's been de-Christianized so that larger culture can celebrate Christmas. And so there is a distinction to be made. Even the cultural elements probably aren't as connected to paganism as they are just to um, the separation of the the Christian elements of Christmas to make them more acceptable to larger culture. And so so the materialism that we experience at Christmas time is very much associated with culture. Gift-giving might have a little bit of a tie to paganism, uh, but probably even more so culture, because companies love to sell lots of stuff at this time of the year. And so it's probably more of a cultural thing than other things. Um, 
there are so many cultural elements. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that there are some pagan elements to Christmas. But that said, the celebration of Christmas was not co-opted from other religions. And even though the early church didn't celebrate Christmas in the way that we do, it's important to note that it wasn't because they were against celebrating Christmas. It just wasn't on their radar because they thought like Jews. And Jews didn't see the date of your birth as your birthday. They saw the date of your conception as your birthday. Thus, the reason why Jews and Christians have had a high value on the sanctity of human life. So this week, I want to jump into another Christmas passage and talk about the history and the traditions that come to us from this passage. So in Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. It's important for us to understand that Luke is a historian. He's not just um, someone who is writing a, a story. He was a historian. And anyone um, who rejects the historical nature of the New Testament should consider the fact that the New Testament is the most substantiated document that we have from the ancient world. F.F. Bruce was an individual who wrote um, several books, but he, he wrote this, classical scholars don't doubt the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides, even though the first manuscripts that we have of those documents are 1,300 years later than the originals. Julius Caesar's Gaelic War, written between 58 and 50 BC. We have nine or ten decent manuscripts, the earliest of which was created nine centuries after Caesar. Of the 14 books of the histories of Tacitus from AD 100, only four have completely survived. Just two of the manuscripts, one comes from the 9th century and one from the 11th century, are the earliest. The great 5th century BC history of Thucydides is known to us even though we only have eight manuscripts, the earliest of which was created around AD 900, and then the same of his contemporary Herodotus, often called the father of history. And when historians look at these documents, they do not doubt the historical authenticity of these documents. But for some reason, they often throw the New Testament under the bus, so to speak. They doubt the historicity of the New Testament, even though we have just an unbelievable amount of documentation regarding the New Testament. So by contrast, we have over 5,000 entire or partial manuscripts of the New Testament. And the gap between our first manuscripts and the original documents are only a few hundred years. The quantity, the quality, and the reliability of the New Testament documents are unparalleled 
when it comes to ancient documents. There is no comparison. Luke firmly places these events in history, and we have a substantial amount of documentation that says that these documents are reliable and good. So, when you hear individuals that question the authenticity of the New Testament, then if they doubt the historicity of the New Testament, then they also need to doubt all of the other documents from the ancient world. You can't hold one set of documents by one set of rules and another set of documents by another set of rules. And remember, Luke wrote as a historian in Luke chapter 1. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I write to you. He writes from the perspective of a historian. Now, not every document in the New Testament is, a, is, is written in the genre of history. But Luke and Acts are. In fact, we believe is, is that Luke and Acts were bound together when they were first being given to the church. And, and they're written um, clearly as history, as, as well as the other Gospels. Now, some of the New Testament, um, the, the genre of literature that they're called is letters, epistles. And it's helpful to know what genre is coming to us when we're reading the New Testament. But just know is, is that it's written as history. It presents itself as history. Therefore, we have to judge it based upon its historical claims. Luke investigated. He writes as a scholar and a historian. In Colossians 4.14, Paul calls Luke a doctor. He obviously was educated. He was probably a medical doctor. Therefore, he studied the sciences. Even more interesting is, is that he's a Gentile. He's the only Gentile who writes in the New Testament. His excellent accounts, along with other Gospels and the key events of Christ's life, are the most important from that era in the history of the world. And he was a devoted Christian. A truth that's demonstrated by his unselfish service and companionship to the Apostle Paul. It's likely that he interviewed Paul and most of the disciples, if not all of the disciples, and that he interviewed Mary, which is really fun to think about. The famous chemist, archaeologist, and Nobel Prize winner, Sir William Ramsey, credited Luke's historical accuracy with his own conversion. Sir William Ramsey, in his earlier years, he had been influenced by a strain of teaching that considered the New Testament to be written at a much later date, to be historically unreliable, and to be questionable, to say the very least. That's, that's, that's what William Ramsey was taught under. But after he read parts of the New Testament, he began to investigate it thoroughly. He literally traveled to the places that Luke wrote about, and he became an archaeologist. He literally went to the places that Luke talks about, and he began to dig. And he found places 
and things that Luke talked about. And after traveling to these places, he concluded not only that Luke was a great historian, but that Luke was among the historians of first rank. Ramsey said that the first and essential quality of a great historian is truth. What a historian says must be trustworthy. And he found Luke to be among the most trustworthy historians in the ancient world, if not even the most. Ramsey found that Luke's accounts, as they're recorded in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, to be trustworthy and true. The reason I gave you all of that information, I sound like a professor, is because it's important for us to understand that Luke was writing history. He used events and names from history. Caesar Augustus. Augustus was the first Roman emperor of the ancient Roman Empire. He came to power after the assassination of Julius Caesar, and he took Rome from being a regional influence to a massive empire in the days of Caesar Augustus. Quirinius. For years, the accusation was made that Quirinius never governed in Syria. In more recent years, it has been found, though, that Quirinius governed in Syria twice. Once in AD 6 through 9, But we know now that that was his second tenure in office. Craig Blomberg, in his book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, points out that ancient manuscripts have been found that tell us that Quirinius was a part of the politics of the region and that at least two times he governed, possibly even more than that. Luke's reference may actually substantiate history, not be wrong about history. In fact, we can say is, is that it does substantiate history because Luke is the document that we had that mentioned Quirinius. And the historians questioned the New Testament because we had no other proof about Quirinius until not too many years ago, they found some archaeological documents that talk about Quirinius. So Luke's reference is history and was the only historical proof that we had of Quirinius until the recent manuscripts were found. The census. Census was a common Roman practice, likely to make sure that the tax rolls were correct, right? Because taxes are really important. We don't know for sure if this was a national census or a regional census, But we do know that the census was a common tool of Roman governance. Okay, Bethlehem. Bethlehem's ancient roots are recorded in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Genesis tells us that Bethlehem is the burial place of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. We're also told that it is the place that Naomi went back to when her husband passed away as well as her sons. And we're told that her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, went with her. That when they got back to Bethlehem, that they were literally in abject poverty, on the verge of starving to death. And so Ruth went out to the fields to glean from the edge of the fields to provide food for her and Naomi. And she met the owner of the field, Boaz. 
And there's a beautiful story about how Ruth and Boaz come together and become husband and wife. The blessing, blessing given to Ruth by Naomi at her wedding was, May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. That's Ruth 4.11. Most significantly, the book of Ruth concludes by tracing the family line of Perez through Boaz to Jesse, the father of David. All of this happening in Bethlehem. Luke 16 tells us that the prophet Samuel was sent to Bethlehem. 1 Samuel 16.1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. The son chosen wasn't the one who looked most like a king. That would have been Eliab. When Samuel saw Eliab, Samuel thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed that's in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel made his way down through all of the sons, and none of them were the Lord's choice. And so Samuel turned to Jesse and said, Is there any other? And Jesse said, well, yeah, there's one more, the little one. But he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. David wasn't even present. He had to be fetched from the fields where he was shepherding the sheep. When David arrived from the field, God directed Samuel to anoint him. At that time, David nor his brothers seemed to realize that David had just been anointed king of the Jews at Bethlehem the city of David. Jerusalem is also referred to, the city, uh, referred to as the city of David. He was anointed at Bethlehem. And in many ways, David's story is the story of his journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. That sounds really familiar. In many ways, the Gospels start the story of Jesus. In Bethlehem, and then follow him as he goes to Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, the prophet Micah prophesied that from Bethlehem shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Ruler simultaneously means ruler and shepherd. That's not talking about David, it's talking about another ruler who will come from Bethlehem. Why did Herod kill the babies in Bethlehem two years and younger? Because he knew that the Jews believed that a ruler would come out of Bethlehem based upon what the prophet Micah had said. Joseph took Mary to Bethlehem because they needed to register for the census. Why is Bethlehem so significant? Well, there's everything that I just said. But in the opening chapter of Luke, Luke reminds us that Joseph is of the house of David. Joseph is forced to register in the Davidic town of Bethlehem because that's where his lineage is from. 
He is of the house and lineage of David, Luke 2.4. Indeed, Luke first identifies the city as the city of David before adding that its name is Bethlehem. It's clear that in Luke's mind, the primary significance of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus is that it associates him with King David. Bethlehem, when you look at it in the original language, means house of bread. John recorded Jesus' words in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. The bread of life, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread for us. We think of the manger scene. And it's wise for us to think about what is represented in Scripture. The only indication that we get in Scripture that there is a barn is the manger. The problem that we run into is is that the word um, that's used um, for the room that Mary and Joseph were going to occupy is that the same word that is translated as in in the King James Version, there was no room for them in the inn. That same word is used when Luke talks about the upper room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. In the biblical story, we, found that, we find that Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem for the census and there is no room for them in the inn. The problem is, is that the, it's the King James Version that translates that word as the N, and it can be translated that way. But the NIV translates the word N as guest room, which is probably the correct translation. And I could go into the Greek words, but the reason why we believe that it's the best translation is, is because both in um, Luke 22.11 and in Mark 14.14, 14, the word that's actually used is guest room, referring to upper room, where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. So when Luke wants to designate an inn with an innkeeper, he actually uses a different word. So what happened? What happened when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem? And that room, whether it was at an inn or was the guest room in the house, wasn't available. We don't know for sure. But it's possible that Mary and Joseph were turned away, not necessarily from the inn, but from the room. Houses typically had one story. The family would stay on the ground floor. If the family was poor, then oftentimes they only had a few animals. And the stall for the animals was inside of the house, on the first floor, usually in a corner. And so, um, so that is kind of a little bit of a picture of what a house looked like in the first century. But they also had the roof. Sometimes the roof was a place where a guest room would be built. The roof could be used for a workspace, storage space, sleeping on hot nights, which is interesting. That was the ancient form of air conditioning. So sleeping on hot nights, um, 
or sometimes a guest room was built on that second on that second floor or on the roof. So Joseph, who is from King's David line, probably had planned to stay with relatives in Bethlehem or had made prior arrangements. He and Mary probably expected to stay in the guest room, but when they arrived, they found it occupied. What happened? Well, it might have been bad planning. Joseph may have just been like a lot of men and just made the assumption that that when he got there, that it would be okay that they stayed with the relatives. But it also might have been the social stigma attached to Mary's pregnancy. You would expect that Mary going into labor would have made sheltering in the guest room a priority. But no. Which suggests that Mary's pregnancy was seen as scandalous, inappropriate, at best. It seems like that the tradition is correct and that they went to a nearby cave. If you go to Israel, you can go to the Church of the Nativity. And it's actually built over one of the caves near Bethlehem. Why a cave? To understand why Joseph and Mary would be sent there, we need to know something about the sheep and the shepherds in the area. Bethlehem was just a few miles from Jerusalem. The sheep shepherds raised in Bethlehem were raised for sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. The flocks stayed out in the fields nearby. They were not brought to the caves at night. Rather, the shepherds who were mostly Levites, remember that Levites are the priestly line that served in the temple. So the shepherds, mostly Levites, were a part of the priestly families, and they would bring the ewes into the caves to give birth. The caves were kept ritually clean. And so when Joseph had to find a place for Mary to give birth, as clean of a place as possible, it would have been natural for him to think about the birthing caves. Luke in the King James tells us that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling claws. Literally, it means that he was bandaged. After Jewish babies were born, they were washed in salt water, they were rubbed with salt, then they were wrapped up tight with their arms against their sides, with their legs extended. This treatment was believed to be good for the baby, but it was also an act of spiritual significance. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, it says, God corrected Israel for its apostasy. He says that Israel was not washed, rubbed with salt, or swaddled. Because of this, following the ritual of washing, salting, and swaddling was seen as an act of faithfulness, while failing to do so was seen as an act of apostasy. 
Where did the bandages that Jesus was swaddled come from? There are two possibilities. The one possibility has to do with the lambs that were born in the cave. In order to be fit for sacrifice, the lambs had to be without spot or blemish. As a result, according to the Mishnah, newborn lambs were inspected. And you could literally think is, is that when a lamb was born, that it would be prepared and cleaned, and before it was swaddled, the shepherd would hold it up and look over every aspect of the lamb and make sure that it was without blemish, that it was as close to perfect as it could possibly be. And then it was swaddled in cloth to keep the lamb from injuring itself as it thrashed around. Thus, the bandages for swaddling could have been in the cave when Mary and Joseph arrived. There was another option. The other option is that is that um, the cloth actually came from Joseph. When a Jew died, the law said that he had to be buried immediately. When traveling a long distance with all of the accompanying dangers, faithful Jews in Jesus' day would wrap bandages around their waist for use as a burial shroud should they die or be killed along the way. We know that Mary and Joseph came from Nazareth. If I remember correctly, that's 80 miles from Bethlehem. And being a faithful Jew, Joseph would have wrapped a burial cloth around his waist. It would have looked like it was a part of his garment. And if for some reason he would die along the way, he would have the appropriate burial cloth with him. Joseph may have used his burial shroud to swaddle Jesus. In either case, the swaddling clause carried with them a powerful message. Jesus was to be faithful to the covenant and he came to die on the Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thus when the angel appeared to the shepherds telling them that they should find the baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger, they understood exactly what the angel was saying. And they even knew where to find Jesus. As Levitical shepherds, they knew that this was a sign that could not be misunderstood. And so the shepherds went to the obvious place. And they found the family. 
And they told the family about the angels and then told everyone who would listen about the angels and the baby. And we're told that Mary kept these things in her heart. And decades later, she related them to Luke. At this time of the year, we celebrate Advent. And the celebration of Advent, and the, the word Advent literally means coming. It used to actually be a 40-day celebration. And somehow, um, we don't know exactly how it got turned into the four weeks before Christmas. But it's the countdown to Christmas. And so every week we light a candle remembering that God became flesh to dwell among us. And that he was born in Bethlehem. That he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that he is God's word given to us, both the living word, which the written word speaks about. Here's the thing, and then we're going to take communion. Hidden in the details of Christmas are profound insights, both theological and historical, about Jesus and his work. And then there's the larger and deeper significance of the incarnation itself. That God became a human being. That he took on the human nature and that he himself stepped into our circumstances. That he lived the perfect life that you and I can't live and that he died on a cross for the sin of the world. Hidden in the details of Christmas is a wonder that's beyond words. Let's pray. Father and Lord God, thank you. Lord, thank you for your word. There's so much in your word that that we don't see, but then we do see. Lord, that Everything that you've given us has so much significance. All of your word speaks to that significance, but then ultimately our significance comes from the fact that you find us so valuable that you're willing and want to give the best of heaven for us, those who don't deserve it, but receive it, your gift, forgiveness which comes through your sacrifice, Jesus. Father, help us to not only see the power of your word, but also to have it become a part of our hearts and lives. And Lord, may we go out into our community and be the light of Christ to a very broken, very hurting world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.